This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Colin Barrett read his story, A Shooting in Rathredon, from the December 13, 2021 issue of the magazine. Barrett is the author of the story collection Young Skins, which won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and the Guardian First Book Award in 2014. A new collection, Homesickness, will be published in May. Now here's Colin Barrett. A Shooting in Rathredon Sergeant Jackie Noonan was squaring away paperwork when the call came in, just her and the gosling, Prunches Swift, in Ballinagarda Station. The third officer on duty, Sergeant Dennis Crane, had run out to oversee the extraction of a Renault Megane that some young lad, sober apparently, just a nervous non-local, negotiating the cat's cradle of back roads around Currabagan, had nosed into a ditch a half-mile out from the National School. The car was a write-off, but the lad had got away without a scratch, according to Crane, and he was a lucky lad, because Noonan knew the roads out that way, and they were wicked, high-ditched, hilly, and altogether too narrow, scantily signposted, and laced with half-hidden, acutely right-angled turns that it took only a second's inattention to be ambushed by. Noonan was at her desk, drinking coffee as black as a vinyl record, from a battered silver cafetiere, and transferring a weekend's worth of write-ups from her notebook into the central computer system. The weekend had been unremarkable but busy. A dozen or so minor traffic infractions, a fistfight between stocious teenage cousins outside a Main Street chipper late last night, and a call-out this morning, prompted by what turned out to be a man's duffel coat, snagged in the weir gates of the Moy River, which was enthusiastically mistaken for a body by a band of visiting American summer students and their professor taking an early constitutional along the quays. The notes executed in Noonan's irredeemable Kitog scrawl were the usual hassle to decipher, their transcription to the computer an activity of an order of tedium that Noonan nonetheless found strangely assuaging. So absorbed was she in this task that she started in surprise when the phone on the main desk rang out. Prunches, she commanded, without looking away from the screen. The phone continued ringing. Prunches! Noonan glanced up. Prunches wasn't at his desk. He wasn't in the room. Noonan made her way over to the main desk. She snatched the handset from its cradle. Balnagarda Station, Sergeant Noonan speaking. There's been a shooting, a voice, a man's declared. A shooting, Noonan repeated, just as Prunches appeared with a mug in his hand. Prunches Swift was twenty-four, out of temple more or less than three years, and an aura of adolescent gawkiness clung to him yet. He was tall, but disposed to stooping, with an emphatic aquiline bump in his conch, jumpy eyes, and a guileless shine coming off his forehead. Even the chevrons of premature grey in his crew-cut served only to emphasise his prevailing boyishness. When he heard Noonan say a shooting, he froze in place and stared at her with his mouth open. When you say a shooting, a shooting as in someone's been shot with a gun, Noonan asked the man. What other kind of shooting is there, the man said. Hang on now, Noonan said. Keeping the cordless handset to her ear, she returned to her own desk, sat back down, and retrieved her pen and notebook. How many people have been shot, she asked. Just the one. The person shot, a man or a woman? A man. Is he dead? The man on the end of the line sighed. He is not. He's out there now in the back field. He's in a bit of a bad way, 
How badly injured is he in your estimation? Noonan said, raising a finger to catch Punchus's attention, then pointing at the phone on his desk, meaning call the emergency at Castlebar General. He took a serious enough hit, but what it was was a warning shot. I wanted on record I was in fear for my life and my son's life. I was not aiming at him at all. He broke onto my property. I was in fear for my life and was only trying to warn him off. The man was outside on a mobile, his voice dipping in and out amid the ambient scratch and crumple of the elements. I need your name, Noonan said, and when the man did not immediately answer, she added, it's important that you answer my questions now, please. Bertie, Bertie Creedon, the man said. Where's your property located, Mr. Creedon? Rathredon. I'm on the far side of Rathredon. You're going to have to narrow that down for me. Take the Bunny Conlon Road as far as Mills Turn. Do you know Mills Turn? I do, Noonan said, dashing down Mills Turn in her notebook. Where am I heading from there? Take the third road on the left after Mills Turn. Keep along that road a mile and a half until you come to a farm with a yellow bungalow and a 92 Fiat motorhome up on bricks out the front. Yellow bungalow, 92 Fiat motorhome up on bricks, Noonan recited as she wrote. Okay, I have you, your young fella, and the fella's been shot. Is there anyone else to account for on the property? That's it. And the injury? How many times was the fella shot? Just the once, by accident, like I said. Where in his body did he take the hit, can you tell? In his... in his middle, his midriff. What kind of gun was he shot with? A shotgun. Double barrel? Double barrel. And that's your gun, is it? The growl of a throat clear, sounding almost gratified, came down the line. It's legally registered, and I'm lucky I have it. As far as you can determine, is the man bleeding badly? I don't want you to go prodding at him, but it's important to stop the bleeding if you can. The sun's after going inside and emptying the press of every last towel. We've the wounds stanched as best we can. That's good, Mr. Creedon. Keep the pressure on the bleeding. We are coming right out. The ambulance is on the way too. What I would ask is that you render your gun safe if you haven't already done so. What happened to this fellow's on him, Creedon interjected with renewed conviction. He was on my property, he was in the act of committing a crime, and I was in fear for my life and my son's life. I want that clear. Okay. We will be there in fifteen minutes, Mr. Creighton. Just heed what I said about the gun. Let's take the gun out of the equation altogether, Noonan was saying, but the quenched noise of the disconnected line was already in her ear. Noonan dropped the handset on her desk. Did you catch all that, she asked Swift. Ambulance is dispatched, Swift said. Let's beat them to the draw, Noonan said. Noonan and Swift were on the road when they got Crane on the squad car radio. Shots fired, man down, firearms still in play, Crane summarised after Noonan had given him a rundown of the situation. That's the size of it, Noonan said. I'm wondering if we shouldn't just put a shout in now to the special response unit, Crane suggested. Fellas done the shooting rang us of his own volition. I asked him questions, he answered them. He's not lost his reason. You can't rely on reason with a firearm in play. Just let us put our feet in the ground out there, get the lay of the land. No cause to escalate yet. I'm the other side of Ballinan, I'll be out to you as soon as I can, but Noonan, ye get out there, and there's a hint of anything off. I need you to withdraw and hold tight. I hear you. Good luck, Crane said, and signed off. They were a couple of miles out from Mill's turn, when they ranged into the wake of a tractor towing a trailer full of sheep. Noonan got right up the trailer's arse, siren wap-wapping, but the stretch of road they were on was not wide enough for the tractor to let them pass. Come on to fuck, Noonan said as the trailer weaved from side to side ahead of them. Sheep were packed thick into it, stamps of red dye smudged on their coats like bloody handprints, 
their snouts nudging in anxious query between the gaps in the trailer's bars. Once the road opened out, Noonan gunned the engine and streaked by the tractor. As instructed, they took the third left after Mill's turn and found themselves on a single-lane road through Rathredon. Rathredon was nothing but flat acres of farmland, well-spaced houses set off the road at the ends of long lanes, and cows sitting like shelves of rock in the middle of the fields, absorbing the last of the day's declining rays. Where the hedgerows dropped low, those same rays, crazed with motes and still piercingly bright, blazed across Noonan's line of sight. She flipped down the visor. She considered the gosling. Swift was quieter than usual, his gaze trained out the window and one knee frantically joggling. That is some incarnation of sun, Noonan said, talking just to talk, to draw Swift out of his introversion. Haven't seen a sun like that since Guadalajara. You know where Guadalajara is, Prunches? Is it the far side of Belmullet? Noonan smiled. Technically it is. Visited there a few years back, unreal how beautiful it was. The light just lands different. The world is different everywhere, I suppose. It is. We went there for an anniversary. It was Trevor's idea, Trevor's the traveller. Noonan continued, Trevor was her husband. Enjoying the place you get to is one thing, but Trevor has this thing for the travel itself, the luggage and the security lines, the time zones, the little trays of food with the foil lids you peel back that they give you on board, and even these days having to drag a pair of mewling teenage boys everywhere with us. Trevor gets giddy at all of it somehow. Me, I could live a long, happy life, never going through a metal detector again. You ever been anywhere exotic, Prunches? I've been the far side of Belmullet. Good man. Ah, Swift said, I've no interest really. Wherever I am, that's where I like. A man after my own heart. Presently they found the residence, a low bungalow off a gravel lane, the red galvanised roofs of farm buildings visible at the rear of the property. An enormous rickety white motorhome was stranded in the grass at the front. Now we'll see what's what, Noonan said. She cut the siren and turned through the concrete posts of the gateless gate. The squad car bounced and lurched as it passed over the rattling bars of a cattle grate. Next to the motorhome, there were pieces of outdoor furniture and what looked like a little fire pit dug out of the ground, empty wine bottles planted in the moat of ash surrounding the pit. Scattered elsewhere in the grass were bags of feed, a stripped-down, rusted-out engine block, scraps of tarp, scraps of lumber, metal piping, plastic piping, bits and bits and bits. Look at all this shit, Newman said. Steady on, Swift said, nodding ahead. A man had come around the side of the house. He was holding something to his head, and his other arm was raised palm forward. Noonan killed the engine and got out of the squad car, keeping her body behind the door. Swift followed her lead on the other side. This the Creedon residence, Noonan asked. It is surely, the man said. He was pressing a stained tea towel of blue and white check to his temple. The stains looked like blood. I'm Sergeant Noonan, out of Balna Garda Station. This is Garda Swift. You Bertie Creedon. Christ, no. You'd be the son, then. That's more like it. What's your name? I've no say in it, but every cunt that knows me does call me Bubbles. Bubbles looked to be in his early thirties. He was stocky, his head shaved close. He was in a faded grey t-shirt with Queens of the Stone Age, era vulgaris, printed on it in a disintegrating white script. There were dark wet daubs of blood flecking his forearms like tracks left by a bird. We hear there's been a spot of bother, Noonan said. There has. That knocked to the head part of the bother. A little bit. All right, Bubble said, and lifted the towel away from his temple to let them see. There was an open gash above his eyebrow. Noonan whistled. I wager that needs stitching. 
I understand there's another man in a bad way here too. Is that right? There is, yeah. That is blood in you. Some of it, yeah. Can you take us to him? I can. Get the emergency kit, Noonan said to Swift. Swift popped the boot, took out a bulky, multi-pocketed bag and handed it over to Noonan. Lead the way, she said, sliding the kit strap over her shoulder. Bubbles cleared his throat. This situation here, you have to understand. My father was in fear for our lives. We'll be sure to take that into account. Bubbles led Noonan and Swift down a short dirt track into the yard at the back of the property. The yard was covered in matted, trampled-down straw. Noonan watched Bubbles step indifferently into a cowpat the size of a dinner plate, his boot heel leaving an oozing bite mark in the pat's crust. The air was thick with the heavy, grainy, sweet redolence of fodder and shit. Through a window cut out of the galvanised façade of a shed, cows blinked their stark, red-rimmed eyes as if roused from sleep. That's where we caught him, brazen as you like, Bubbles said, gesturing at the large, cylindrical oil tank mounted on a bed of brick next to the cowshed. He was thieving oil, Noonan asked. Such a stupid thing to be at, Bubbles said. There's nothing left from the winter gone, and it won't be filled again for months. Who's going to have a full tank of oil in the middle of summer? They passed a final row of sheds and came out into an open field. Fifty feet ahead of them, a short man was standing over a second man lying on his back on the ground. On the horizon, Noonan could make out the low blunted serrations of the Ox Mountains. Bertie Creedon, Noonan called out to the stand-in man. Aye, Creedon said, not taking his eyes off the man on the ground, his shotgun tucked at an idle diagonal under his arm. Noonan kept walking toward Creedon at an even clip, not hurrying, taking care not to break stride. When she was a handful of paces from him, he finally looked at her. Creedon had watery blue eyes, cheeks latticed with broken blood vessels, a head of wind-blown, thinning yellow hair and a set of small, corroded teeth. He did not react as Noonan gripped the barrel of the shotgun, brought her second hand to the butt and transferred the weapon into her embrace as firmly and gently as if she were taking possession of a newborn. She checked the safety, broke the gun, slipped the ammunition from the chamber and pocketed the cartridges. All right, Noonan said. She handed the gun off to Swift, took a second look at Creedon to make sure he wasn't considering anything, then addressed her attention to the man lying in the grass. The man was young, lanky enough by the sprawl of him, his dark hair sticking to his pale forehead in strings, and for a moment Noonan did not recognise him, his features crushed into anonymity with distress. It was only when his eyes, screwed shut, burst fearfully open, they were blue, but a deeper, more charged blue than the farmer's, phosphorescent almost, that his face turned into one Noonan knew. God above in heaven, is that you, Dylan Judge? Dylan Judge groaned in assent. Dylan Judge was from Ballina town. He was what you would call known to the police. In his early twenties, he had already run up a decent tally of minor convictions, breaking and entering, drunken disorderly, possession. Judge was one of those prolific, inveterately small-time crooks who possess real criminal instincts but no criminal talent. He was opportunistic, impulsive, and undisciplined, requiring little in the way of convincing and not even much in the way of incentive to be roped into an underhanded scheme so long as the scheme did not involve much effort or forethought. Noonan kneeled down in the grass next to Judge and slid the emergency kit from her shoulder. She tore open a pack of nitrile gloves, worked the gloves over her hands. Do you remember me at all, Dylan? Yeah, yeah, he muttered vaguely. It's Noonan, Sergeant Jackie Noonan out of Ballina, and that there is Garda Prunchus Swift. Prunchus, Judge repeated with a faint sneer. It's a name that draws attention to itself, all right, Noonan said, as she began scanning Judge's wounds. 
There was a mess of hand towels plastered over his groin and tucked in under his backside. The towels, along with his jeans, were plumb dark with blood. From the amount of blood, Noonan could tell he was in a very bad way. She unpacked the gauze, the trauma shears. You remember the last time we met, Noonan asked. We were chasing a consignment of cigarettes and wound up at your house. You stormed into the gaff at all hours, Judge said with genuine recollection. We thought we had you, Dylan, and you were out of luck. That time we were. It must have been a little over a year ago. They had received a tip considered credible that Judge was sitting on a significant quantity of cigarettes smuggled down from the north, so they got a warrant and raided his place in the Glen Gardens estate. Technically not even his place, because there was only the girlfriend's name on the lease, if Noonan remembered correctly. They raided the house at dawn and made Judge, his girlfriend, and their little daughter stand outside in their pyjamas in the chill grey light while the guards turned the place upside down. Noonan remembered the girlfriend, five foot nothing, stick thin and incensed, unceasingly effing and blinding, while a saucer-eyed and gravely silent little girl, no more than three or four years old, sat up in her arms, watching the guards troop in and out of the house. Not a peep out of this fella that Noonan could remember, Judge just skulking meekly behind his raging bure, eyes on the ground. His entire demeanour had read guilty as sin, but the raid somehow turned out to be a waste of time. All they found was a half-dozen cartons of cigarettes under a tarp at the back of the property's suspiciously empty shed, nowhere near enough to hang an intent-to-sell charge on. "'Are you still with that young one, Dylan? That little one with the mouth on her?' Noonan asked. She wanted to keep him awake and talking. "'Amy, yeah? Same bird.' Such language out of her. This tiny thing stood there in her fluffy slippers, and the little butte got his gold up at her arms. "'What age is your girl?' That's Amy's kid. Gingerly, Noonan removed the towels covering Judge's groin. Judge gasped. That's okay, that's okay, Noonan said. It doesn't matter a whit whether she's yours or not so long as you treat her well. I treat her like a queen, he slurred. I bet you do. Bear with me now, Dylan, Noonan said. She slipped off Judge's runner, lifted the cuff of his pant leg, and with the trauma shears, drew a clean slit from his ankle up to his hip, then peeled back the panel of the jean. She could make out several raw black punctures, where the buckshot had gone into his thigh. His skin was stained with drying blood, and there was fresh blood oozing steadily from the wounds. Noonan continued cutting, delicately tearing away his T-shirt. His abdomen was completely sodden with blood, and there were big, ugly perforations in the flesh of his stomach, as if he'd been gored. A malign smell began to gather beneath Noonan's nose. It took her a second to recognise it as the smell of human shit. "'How was it look?' Judge croaked. "'Like you got shot?' Ah, oh, fuck. Am I going to die? I reckon if you were going to bleed to death, you would have done so by now. There was little Noonan could do but keep Judge calm and conscious. Steadying her touch as best she could, she began tearing gauze into strips and placing the strips over the worst-looking wounds, watching as each swatch of material was immediately soaked through with a fresh bloom of red. She picked back up one of the towels and pressed it against his abdomen. In close, she heard a faint, insistent noise, there, down in the grass under Judge's head, a racing, paper-thin beat was escaping from an earbud. "'What's the little girl's name?' Noonan asked, but Judge did not answer. His eyelids were heavy and fluttering, like those of a child fighting sleep. His lips were colourless, stuck to his teeth. "'Come on now, Dylan,' Noonan asserted, tapping his cheek with her fingers. "'Ambulance'll be here any second. Come on. They're going to pump you full of the good stuff. Pharmaceutical-grade narcotics and no fucking about.' Noonan thought she saw a smile, a brief flicker on Judge's lips. A few feet away in the grass were a couple of plastic jerry cans, 
a length of hosepipe sticking out of one of them. There was a small amount of urine-coloured oil in that can. The second can was empty. Noonan wondered where it was Judge might have been heading, and then she saw it at the far edge of the field, the squat, muddy-white body of a quad bike parked in the declivity of what must have been a boreen or a back lane. See that, she said to Swift, the getaway vehicle. She thought about what Bubbles had said in the yard, that summer was the stupidest possible time to try to rob oil out of an oil tank. Noonan had grown up in the countryside. There had been a tank out the back of the house that was filled every autumn, just before the cold weather set in. Although there was always a sitting-room fire going, use of the radiators was strictly rationed. The goal was to try to make the single tank of oil last the whole winter, and so Jackie Noonan's house had been a cold house. Noonan remembered her mother roaring at her and her siblings to put on a jumper whenever one of them dared voice a complaint about the cold. She remembered the single glazed window above her headboard in the bedroom she shared with her sisters, Maureen and Patricia, the brown putty smell of the fly-specked sill, and the clear ache in the tips of her fingers when she touched her hand to the thin glass on winter mornings. She was holding Judge's arm, two fingers pressed to his wrist. His arm was an alienly cold weight. He was still breathing, but she wanted to feel the tick of his pulse under the skin to assure herself it was there. With her other hand she was keeping a towel pressed against the worst of the bleeding. Beneath his head she could still hear the tiny, tinny, tit-tit-tit-tit of his headphones. The miasmic smell of human shit seemed to be getting stronger. She felt as if it were working itself into her pores, coating the back of her throat. Noonan believed that Dylan Judge was going to die if the ambulance did not arrive very soon, and probably anyway. They're here, Swift announced. Noonan looked up and saw three figures jogging across the field. Sergeant Dennis Crane led the way, followed by two paramedics toting a scoop stretcher. Just as he was about to reach them, Crane stumbled and his jog turned into a sudden hobble. Shite, he exclaimed. You okay? Noonan asked. I'm after going over me ankle. The paramedics dropped down into the grass next to Noonan and Judge. We have it now, one of them said. Noonan got to her feet and stepped back. She brushed her brow with the back of her gloved hand and felt the cold slickness of blood in her forehead. That's Dylan Judge, she said to Crane, who was grimacing and testing the weight in his foot. Are you kidding me, Crane said, squinting coolly at Judge's white, unconscious face. Crane had played rugby for Connacht when he was younger. The rim of his left ear was baroquely gnarled, his nose coarsely flattened from repeated breaks. These historical injuries, combined with Crane's big belly and bull neck, suggested vigour and capability. Noonan could hear the sound of air being expelled in a slow, pronounced jet through the crushed passage of his nose, a noise she always found reassuring. Judge was in the middle of robbing the oil tank in the yard when these two interrupted him, she said. Crane lifted his foot, rotated it carefully in the air, and put it down. Who shot him? Bertie here, the senior of the two, is claiming he did, Noonan said when neither man spoke. I did not mean to, Creedon said. Crane chuckled coldly at that. The paramedics were preparing to move Judge. They had strapped him to the stretcher and placed an oxygen mask over his face. Crane touched Noonan on the elbow to indicate that she should stay put. He joined the paramedics, exchanging a couple of hushed sentences with one of them, before they lifted the stretcher and began making their way toward the yard. Is he still alive? Noonan asked when Crane came back over to her. Crane's grunt was equivocal. I reckon he was just about to go as you got here, Noonan said. That's not your call to make. That boy isn't dead until they say he's dead. Crane addressed the Creedon men. Walk us through what happened here, he said. We'd been away at the Martin Bala, Creedon said. Only we came back earlier than usual this afternoon because the young fellow was supposed to have football training tonight. 
we got in and Bubbles went out to the yard to check on the animals. That's when I saw him brazen as you like straddling that tank like he was up on a horse, Bubbles said. He'd his back to me. Before I could stop myself, I called out, hey. But he didn't pay me a blind bit of heed. Bubbles pointed a finger at the side of his head. The fella had headphones in, sat up there in broad daylight, listening to music, having the time of his life. So I rang the old fella on the mobile and told him, come out quick, there was an intruder in the yard. And that's when this fella turned round and saw me. He was down in a flash, a length of rebar in his hand from God knows where, and before I knew it, he'd hit me a clout in the head. I came into the yard and that's what I saw, Cretan said. This fella stood over my son with a steel bar in his hand and my son's head pumping blood. To see your child like that, the shock of it, he saw me and started running for it. Noonan looked back toward the yard, then down at the rumpled patch of grass where Judge had been flat out in his back. He was running away from you when you shot him, she asked. Do you understand I had the fear of God in me? I didn't know where he was going or what he was going to do. I didn't know how badly my son was hurt. I was afraid he'd be back to finish the job with something worse than the rebar for all I knew. It was a warning shot. If he was running in that direction, away from you, how'd he end up taking the shot to his stomach? The rush of it. It all happened so fast, Creighton stuttered. But he was running away from you. Creighton shook his head. I don't know what to tell you. It was all a confusion. I was in awful fear for our lives. You're telling me you weren't aiming at him. I swear in my life I was not. You took an awful fucking chunk out of him for a fellow you weren't aiming at, Noonan said. He came here, Creighton said, pointing angrily at the ground. He came here. The farmer turned toward the worn down, darkly glinting peaks of the Ox Mountains to compose himself. Crane unclipped a pair of handcuffs from his belt and sprang them open. Garda swiftly said, Can you please place these on Mr. Creedon? I will come willingly, Creedon said. This is how we're doing it, Mr. Creedon, Crane said, as Swift took the cuffs from him. There was a forensics team on the way, and once they secured this scene, we're going to run you and your son here down to the station and get everything on record. The cuffs are for your own security. Punches, you can cuff him from the front. Swift drew Creedon's arms together in front of his waist and clicked on the cuffs. Come here, Crane said to Noonan, walking a dozen paces off into the field, still tentative on his ankle. Noonan followed. Dennis Crane was forty-nine years old, to Noonan's forty-five. He had made Sergeant eighteen months ahead of her, later in his career relative to her but before her, chronologically, and so, by the dictates of the informal but binding hierarchy that exists inside any official hierarchy, Crane was considered her superior, despite sharing the same rank. Nobody had ever put it that way, nobody had ever had to, least of all Crane, who was impeccable in his behaviour toward Noonan. He was always careful to solicit her opinion and often deferred to her judgment. He gave her any amount of latitude and agency in her duties. But still, Noonan could never quite forget that that latitude and agency were only ever granted and only ever his to grant. Noonan knew it, Crane knew it. She had made her peace with this arrangement a long time ago, and she tried not to hold it against Crane. If it weren't him, it'd just be another fella, and probably one less considerate. Crane was fair-minded, decisive and dependable. He was a good policeman. How's the ankle, Noonan asked him. I live. Are you okay? Noonan took off her cap. Navy, with the gold badge of the Garda crest, set into the black band above the cap's peak. Noonan rotated the cap in her hands and placed it back on her head. It's been a long weekend, she said. Crane was gazing off down the field. They're very presentable all the same, aren't they? He said, nodding at the Ox Mountains. They are. That's the thing about Mayo. I find it's very presentable from a distance. 
It's only up close it lets you down. Noonan managed a smile. The family will need to be told, Crane said. Can you handle that? Noonan nodded. Crane studied her for a moment, rooted out a pack of disposable tissues and offered them to her. They're forward, he said. You can't be showing up to the family's door with that poor fucker's blood all over your face. The forensics team arrived, as did Inspectors Burke and McElroy over from Castle Bar. Crane and the inspectors escorted the Creedon men to Balna Station. Noonan and Swift detoured back to the station so that Noonan could clean up, change shirts and double-check the address they had in file. The house in the Glen Gardens estate was under the name Amy Mulally. Noonan rang the listed number but got no answer and decided against leaving a message. She rang home, told Trevor she'd be late. How are you now? Noonan asked Swift as they idled in traffic in the town centre. I'm okay, he said. I mean, you know. He did not complete the thought, smiling dumbly and gazing out at the streets of Ballina as if he weren't quite sure they were there. It was darker now, the streetlights thrown down their harsh yellow dazzle. That the first death you seen on the job, Noonan asked him. It's not been called yet. No, but was it? There was that lad topped himself in the shed in Eski last Christmas. I mean a death where someone else has done the killing. There was a couple of gangland shootings up in Dublin after I'd just come out of Temple Moor. Only saw the aftermaths, though. Never saw a fella dying in front of me like that. You? Noonan shook her head. They were waiting on a light at the entrance to the Tesco car park. A pack of teenage boys were crossing the road. There were five of them, moving in adult formation. They were dressed interchangeably in branded hoodies, some in tracksuit bottoms, some in jeans. They were clean-faced and dark-haired. They so resembled one another, at least at a passing glance, that they might all have been brothers. As they moved from streetlight to streetlight, Noonan watched their bobbing, intent, vociferating heads and smiled, because the thing about boys was that they only had the one haircut. That haircut changed every couple of years, but whatever it was, they all had it. Noonan remembered that for a while, ten, twelve, fifteen years ago, it had been the peroxide blonde highlights. Every strutting little gangster coming up had the peroxide blonde highlights. The style now in vogue was tight at the sides, with just enough hair on top to brush forward or to the side. Her own sons wore that style, and each of these boys did too. For an idle moment, Noonan's attention dwelled on the lad trailing the group, the tallest and palest, not speaking, but sunk in his thoughts, and seemingly indifferent to the animated cross-talk of the four in front. He looked up and caught Noonan's eye. Without thinking, Noonan raised two fingers from the steering wheel in that immemorial gesture of laconic country salute. The boy's face, benignly blank, compressed into a sudden snarl as he hocked a thick pearl of phlegm into the gutter by the squad car and kept on walking. Did you see that? Noonan said to Swift, watching the boys recede in the rearview mirror. See what? Swift mumbled. Noonan swerved the squad car onto the curb, unclipped her seat belt and jumped out into the pavement. She came right up behind the boy, grabbed a fistful of his collar and shoved him against the parking lot wall so forcefully that her own hat went twirling to the ground. What was that now? Have you something you want to say? Noonan roared into the boy's face. The boy looked at her, startled, a muscle jumping in his clenched jaw. Hey, he didn't do nothing, one of the boy's friends blurted. Shut up, Swift said to her friend as he arrived on the scene. Well, Noonan asked the boy. Tell me what I did, the boy said. You know what you did. The boy said nothing. The muscle in his jaw stopped jumping. Pick that cap up, Noonan said. The boy looked at the guard cap on the ground, looked back at Noonan. Pick it up. Noonan released him from her grip, and the boy reached down and picked up the cap. 
As she snatched it from his hand, he skittered out of her reach and straightened his rumpled top. "'You can't just be grabbing people for no reason,' he said, brave and indignant now that Noonan had let him go. Noonan looked at Swift, at the boy's friends. She stepped up to the boy. "'You know well what she did,' she said, "'and you know I know. Have some fucking respect for yourself.' She put her cap back on, nodded at Swift, and turned on her heel. "'The hell was that about?' Swift asked when they were back in the car. "'Let's get this done,' she said, putting the car into gear. There was a large oval green at the centre of the Glen Gardens estate. Several teenagers were punting a ball around beneath the lunar glow of the park lamps, and a couple more were sprawled in the grass, spectating, a little nest of bags and soft drink bottles next to them. "'See that?' Noonan said. "'Any money there's drink in them bottles?' "'Want to ruin their night?' Swift asked. "'Tonight they're off the hook.' Once they'd persuaded Mulally to let them come in, Noonan got a glimpse inside the sitting room as they passed down the hall. It was bathed in the glow of a TV, and the little girl, longer-limbed now, was curled in a chair staring at an iPad. Mulally brought them through to the kitchen. She was still perilously skinny, her hair up in a pineapple, the tendons in her neck flexing like high-tension wires when she spoke. Noonan gave a careful, broad outline of the events at the farm, Judge's apparent scheme to rob the oil tank, the residents confronting him. She said that he had been shot and was not any more explicit about his injuries beyond describing them as extremely serious. This time, Mullally did not shout or rant. She absorbed what Noonan told her without interruption. She did not debate or refute the narrative Noonan laid out. All she asked was if Dylan was going to die. Noonan reiterated that he had been taken to Castlebar General and that that was all they could tell her as of right now. Noonan and Swift stayed put while Mulally rang her mother, who came over to look after the daughter. Mulally agreed to let Swift accompany her to the hospital. Back at the station, the inspector's unmarked focus was parked out front. Noonan picked up the cafetiere from her desk and brought it into the station's pokey little kitchen. Crane was in there, mugs laid out on the counter, meditatively watching the kettle rattle to a boil. Castlebar's finest in with those two, Noonan asked. Crane came out of his thoughts, cracked a faint smile. They have me fetching the tea while they work their magic, he said, pouring the water from the kettle into the mugs. Did you talk to the family? The girlfriend. Swift has gone with her to Castlebar General. The two will want your report the second it's done. I'm getting on that right now, she said, waving the cafeteria at him. Crane stood back so that Noonan could access the counter. He watched her refill the kettle, rinse out the cafetiere, and dump in a couple of spoonfuls of instant coffee. You know, there's bags of beans you can get for that thing, he said. Ground, whole, vanilla, real fancy stuff. I know, I see them every time I'm in Tesco. And you never bother with them. Noonan considered the cafetiere, its chipped silver handle and scratched glass body. It was Trevor who had bought it for her years ago, under the characteristically generous misapprehension that it might inspire in her an enthusiasm for something more than the cheapest of cheap coffee. I just never got around to it. Every time I see the fancy stuff in the supermarket, I think, ah, next time. And the next time I think the same. Word came back from the hospital, Crane said. Okay, Noonan said. Judge was just out of surgery when I spoke to them. Doctor said it'll be touch and go the next couple of days, but it's looking like he might pull through. Are you kidding me? I am not. The kettle came to a boil. Noonan placed her tailbone against the lip of the counter. A fucker, she said, relieved and appalled. Oh, the rotten little fucker. I reckon you might just have saved that rotten little fucker's life. 
"'Stop,' Noonan groaned. "'When we were over at the girlfriend's house, giving her the lowdown, "'the whole time in the back of my head I kept thinking "'how Judge had just about done her the favour of her life, "'getting the guts shot out of himself.' "'My condolences on his survival,' Crane said. "'I was sure he was a goner. "'So was I when I saw the state he was in. "'But as of right now, Dylan Judge remains in the land of the living, thanks to you.' "'Thanks to me,' Noonan said, with a shake of her head. "'She filled the cafetiere with hot water and brought it back to her desk. "'She knew the report would take her some time. "'She had decided that what she was going to do "'was get down the most crucial details quick by hand "'then go back and flesh the events out on the computer.' She sat down and opened her notebook, reread the litter of harried notes she jotted down over the course of Bertie Creedon's phone call. Shoot, one man, Bertie Creedon, Radford Dawn, Mills Turn, three left, yellow H, 92 Fiat, Sun, one shot, double barrel, bleed. She poured a cup of coffee, turned her notebook to a clean page, and began to write. That was Colin Barrett reading his story, A Shooting in Rathredon. He's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2014. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Will Mackin reads The Falls by George Saunders. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Baptiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.